Good morning. What a great, beautiful Lord's Day. Good to see that the cakes have decided to move back to Hatfield. It's wonderful to have them back again. <clears throat> Not really. That's what we wish would happen, but they're visiting again with us. All right, we're in this uh, reflection on prayer, and we're looking particularly at the, uh, what we might call the model prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples when they saw him praying and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he gave them this uh, prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And uh, last week, we looked at the first half of it. Actually, the first two petitions, we suggest there are five petitions in that prayer. Uh, you might want to think about them as five areas or elements that Jesus tells us go into prayer. Today, what I want to think about with you is along this theme of a sort of generalized request. Lord, Father, be present with us. <clears throat> and, uh, and what we'll do is we'll look at the, the third, fourth, and fifth petitions. So let's, uh, let's read the whole section. I have that before us. What I've put before you in white, white print, is the uh, section we looked at last week, those first two petitions, uh, hallowed be your name, let your name be exalted, uh, let it be magnified, may your character be understood in the world. And the second petition, may your kingdom come, meaning that your will is done on earth the way it's done in heaven. So Jesus says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. All right. Let's uh, refresh our minds on uh, the way we're trying to think about prayer. And uh, Jack already mentioned this in his prayer. Let's look at it one more time. This is our kind of orienting definition, that prayer is conversation with God through which we experience his transforming friendship and partner with him in the work of his kingdom. So, 
Lord, teach us to pray. And, uh, and we want to consider those concluding three petitions. Prayer for daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need for the present. Is that a good way to say it? Uh, In other words, this is a prayer for basics. Bread is one of those fundamental resources, essential resources, uh, for most of the history of the world, for much of the world, even today, bread is a basic essential. In, uh, in the wealthiest culture that the world has ever seen, namely ours, uh, we, we have many situations in which we might actually try to avoid bread. You know? Uh, Well, you understand those situations. Too many carbs, right? And so we move toward other things. But what happens if you don't have enough to eat on a regular basis and there's nothing else you can switch to? Yeah, you eat bread, cheese, maybe a little fish, possibly a little meat on occasions, but bread is a basic. And Jesus, uh, in this prayer teaches his disciples to pray for basics. A little bit later in this same chapter, Matthew chapter 6, he gets into that section where he counsels us against worry. Because, I mean, basics are stuff you worry about, right? And so there he talks not only about food, but he also talks about clothing as another basic. He says, consider the, the lilies of the field. Uh, consider the way they're so beautifully adorned by God. And, uh, and, and then consider the birds, that they don't store up in barns, but God provides for them. Well, Jesus says, how much more will God provide for you on those levels of basics? So this is an area we pray about. We're encouraged to pray about it. Uh, Our list of basics probably goes a little bit broader than that, huh? Uh, those, those necessities. So shelter we could include with that. But, but we make a distinction in our minds that there are things that are necessities, those things we really need, and then there's that whole list of, of wants, right, that, that our that our culture teaches us really climb to the level of needs in, in our minds. And, and part of what this third petition does, I think, is it says to us, I am not a person who is defined fundamentally by my needs. The culture says, you are fundamentally a needy person and we'll tell you what you need. And, and that's, that's the way 
That's what drives a lot of our culture, is convincing people that they need things that they don't have. But this petition, in part because it's the third petition, I mean, isn't that interesting? Jesus says, pray in this way. Pray that God might be known for who he is throughout the world. And then pray for the coming of God's kingdom, that his will might be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. And, and all the things, see, that's, that's basic categories, but there's a lot of stuff that can get included in, the, in that part of the prayer. Then he says, all right, having turned your attention to what God is doing in the world... Now turn your attention to those things that you need to function within God's kingdom and to seek that his name should be hallowed in the world. If you were to track my prayers over the years, I suspect that in my prayers, more often than I'd like to admit, Petition three becomes petition one. You think? That I rush into the presence of God and I come as a person filled with this sense of my needs and I can't wait to spill out before God that grocery list. God, I need help. This is what I need you to do for me. Now, Jesus doesn't prohibit at all that we bring to God our needs. He encourages it. But I think the order is significant. Prayer is a promise that God will care for us, as he says in the introduction to this. He says, you know, don't feel like you have to multiply a lot of words because God knows what you, what you need even before you ask him. But come and ask and lay those petitions before him. But understand that you are not a person primarily defined by your needs, even real needs. That's not primarily who you are. You are primarily a person who has been caught up in the net of Jesus' kingdom conspiracy to overthrow the current world order and to establish a new way of doing business as his father willed from the beginning. That's what I've been caught up in. You've been caught up in that. And Jesus says, if you understand that, that that'll be reflected in your prayers. What he then is encouraging, I think, in this, in this particular petition that we're looking at is a life without anxiety. Remember later on in, in chapter 6, verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear, 
Don't worry about that. Why? Because you come to a father who knows your needs and who delights to care for his children and who says, as you are committed to my kingdom agenda, these things get taken care of. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. What are the all things? What he's just talked about. The necessities, the care for the body, the care for our health, whatever is needed for you and me to live effectually in those kingdom purposes. So pray for that, he says, and pray with confidence and give your anxieties to God. Paul understood this quite well when he said, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. Daily bread. And then the fourth petition is this petition for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So sin is spoken of in a variety of ways in the Bible. Various uh, metaphors like uh, missing the target. That's That's a common way that the Old Testament talks about sin. Missing the target, aiming for the wrong things, that's sin. But another way the Bible talks about sin is this picture of indebtedness. Sin is unpaid debt, a debt that grows increasingly heavy. It's it's like... uh, the person who's got a large credit card debt and, and can't make any progress even paying it off because the interest rate is so high that with the compounding, uh, the best they try to do is pay the interest. And then they even struggle with that, and the whole of it grows and grows. Terrible thing to carry. Well, sin is like an unpaid debt. What is the debt from? Well, the debt comes from failure to meet our obligations. What obligations? Well, Jesus said there are two primary obligations. You recall that? The first obligation is love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And we never keep it. Jesus was the only one who ever kept that in its fullness. And the second obligation, he says, is like it, that is, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And we don't keep that either. The, uh, the problem is, we never get to the first great obligation and the second great obligation because in our minds, there's an even greater obligation. The greater obligation we feel is to love ourselves. And that's that's precisely what our culture drives home over and over. You have a duty to yourself. So love yourself and the trickle-down effect will be that 
maybe you love other people. Hopefully you do. First obligation, love yourself. What that does when we practice that, and we all know how to do that quite well, huh? that when we practice that inversion of obligations is that we begin to build up a debt. We owe God love, honor, obedience, all those things we owe God, and we don't pay it, and we owe love to neighbor, and we haven't paid that. And so the debt grows. But forgiveness, which is a central part of the kingdom of God, of the good news that Jesus brings into the world, the good news is that the debt can be canceled. You can't pay it off, right? I mean, that's, that's the old idea of, of works righteousness, that somehow you can do enough of loving God and enough of loving your neighbor that it somehow balances out all the failure, right? But that's, that's like trying to pay off the credit card debt when you can't even manage the, the interest payments. doesn't work. And so the alternative is that the debt simply gets canceled, and that's what the gospel is about. The gospel is about Jesus coming into the world and laying down his life as the perfect example of what it means to love God and love neighbor, and to offer up that perfect life as payment for the obligation that you and I can never meet. And the good news is that understanding that and believing that about what Jesus did in his life and in his death and resurrection, believing that means that I'm able to come to God and acknowledge my failure, acknowledge the debt that I'm carrying that I can't deal with, and the Father says, okay, we agree on this. You go free. This is why I gave my son for you. Now, of course, the problem is that even once you've entered into the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of forgiveness, you and I are still people that regularly fail to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength, and we regularly fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. <clears throat> we still fail to do that. And so even though we are being gradually transformed into the image of Jesus so that we can live like Jesus lived, we... Uh, we still have that obligation that is not met, and so the debt continues to build unless we become people who regularly live in this atmosphere of forgiveness where we come and we ask for forgiveness. Lord, I messed it up again. I thought that my way was better or it was more important, 
and the result is I've neglected my relationship with you or I've, I've offended my wife or my children or I've just made mistakes with people I work with, whatever. And, and the Spirit is at work in our hearts to reveal to us some of those things and, and Jesus says, now come with those fresh issues that you've begun to see about yourselves and ask my Father for forgiveness. And there's forgiveness there, full and free. Now, the part, the part that's uh, a little perplexing sometimes to us is the way he says this. He says, here's the petition, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then it seems he wants to really emphasize that point because after he gives the prayer, he comes back to this in verse 14 and says, look, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And all of a sudden, we kind of snap to attention. Wait a minute, where did that come from? I thought that the gospel said that if I simply acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died in my place, that, that I, I'm forgiven. Period. Full stop. But now it sounds like there's some entailments on that. This, this is like the small print in the contract that some people haven't read before. What's this about? That God says, look, if, if you want to be forgiven, you, you need to forgive other people. Now, do you remember, I, I've told you different times that, that I grew up in churches that said that uh, the Sermon on the Mount was not for disciples today. It was for some future time uh, when the nation of Israel would return to the Lord and he would set up his kingdom and uh, this would be the standard. But, uh, but this isn't for now because this, this sounds like works somehow come into this picture, right? So I grew up with that. And, and one of the reasons people said that was this very verse. So in, in my background, we did not pray the Lord's Prayer. That, that was the reason. It didn't seem to fit with the gospel, this talk about forgiving other people. <clears throat> so... Here's the question. See, what about grace? I'm to forgive others even as Christ forgave me. And, of course, it's stronger than that, Jesus says. If you, if you don't live that way, you're not forgiven. So he seems to be saying that this 
kingdom reality that he brought is a reality that is characterized by forgiveness, not just the forgiveness that God grants to disciples, but it's a forgiveness that characterizes the entire atmosphere, right? We've talked about the kingdom as a, as a sphere of power or influence that radiates from Jesus, and it does so in a way that it creates a forgiving and, and reconciling community. So for me to say, oh, I like that kingdom idea, I want to be part of that, and I want to experience forgiveness, but doggone it, Lord. You don't realize some of the people that I put up with every day. The the idea that I am to be forgiving as an indication or even a requirement, you may say, to be part of your kingdom, that, that's, that seems like too much. Especially with a, a few people that I would, I would rather not see in your kingdom. <clears throat> so we have that on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, we have this reality that... Jesus says, you know what, as disciples, you need to come and you need to ask for forgiveness. And, and sometimes that's exactly the area we need to ask forgiveness for. Right? So, so what do we make out of that? Well, I, I make out of it something like this. Forgiving other people, that's something that I s- still struggle with. And I still fail at times. I got a good memory, folks. I can't always remember your name. But if you do something to me, I never forget that. Understand how that works? Jesus is saying, Dave, if you want to learn to pray, You've got to understand that the prayer for forgiveness is a big circle. And you can't talk to my father about dealing with your daily sins unless you are cultivating this kingdom atmosphere that recognizes that other people sin against you as you also sin against them. And as they turn toward you and acknowledge that, you must extend forgiveness to them. Well, there's more we could talk about there, but uh, enough for now. So, Lord, be with us. That's the second half of this prayer. Be with us, providing for our needs so that we can be free of worry to serve you effectively. And then forgive us our sins and make us forgiving people.
be with us for that. And then the third and final portion of this prayer is the prayer for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. It gets translated both ways. I don't think it makes much difference because in the end, what we recognize as kingdom people is that we are still in danger constantly from the great enemy. The enemy who in the Bible, has been kicked out, but who keeps sneaking back in, in various ways. Or you can say he has been decisively defeated, but he doesn't know that yet. Or he knows it and refuses to surrender. A, a, little bit like, a little bit like Hitler at, uh, or maybe a lot like Hitler, at the end of WW2, when it was clear to everybody, including the German nation, including most of his military officers, it was clear that the war was done. Germany was defeated and was in ruins, and yet Hitler refused to surrender, refused to give up. And the result was that significant numbers of people on both sides died in that. Look at the Battle of the Bulge. It was basically over by that time, and yet uh, an extraordinary loss of life on both sides. Well, it's something like that with our enemy who uh, Jesus said that the hour had come that the, that the ruler of this world would be cast out. And that he's certainly looking at the hour of the cross. And we assume that that has happened. The ruler's been cast out, uh, but he still prowls about. Peter says, uh, watch out because your, your adversary, the devil, uh, goes about like a roaring lion looking for people to chow down on. So we're in danger. And we're encouraged to pray about that. The fifth petition is, Lord, be with us to protect us from the enemy. You know, as, as I think about that, I, I think of all of these five petitions. This may be the one I take least seriously. Do you think? To think of the, the devil as actively involved in leading us into temptation. In the Bible... The word that's right here, it's it's many other places in the New Testament. It's the word that's translated temptation. Other places, it's very clear that it shouldn't be translated temptation. It should be translated testing. But it's the same word. And, And that's pretty fascinating. 
So the Bible assures us that God never tempts anyone because he can't be tempted himself. He doesn't tempt anybody else. So God never tempts, but it makes it equally clear that God tests. And it uses the same word to talk about that. Which leads me to think and see in my own experience that frequently God's tests become the opportunity for the devil's temptations. Do you, do you see how that works in your life? And I don't, think, I don't think I take that seriously enough. Maybe that's in part because we live in a very secularized society where the idea of the devil is only, a, uh, is only something that is mentioned in uh, light-hearted contexts with the cartoons of the little guy with the pointy tail and the, and the horns. But, but I, I don't take the devil seriously the way the New Testament does, the way Jesus does. And as a result, I'm often, I think, caught by surprise. I move from testing into temptation, and I'm, I'm hardly aware that it's happened. I think it happens to us as individuals. I think it happens to us as, as God's people generally. You notice that, that this whole prayer actually is in the plural, isn't it? It's lead us not into temptation. It's give us this day our daily bread. <clears throat> Jesus was very aware of the danger <clears throat> and of tying prayer to protection. See, because I'm not as alert to the danger, then I don't pray about it, and that leaves me unprotected. Our Lord understood this. The disciples didn't. Remember, remember that last night? Monday, Thursday, gathered in the Garden of Gethsemane? <clears throat> what does Jesus do when they arrive there? He says to them, uh, watch and pray so that you don't, notice, so that you don't enter into temptation. Don't be asleep. <laughs> because after that initial admonition for them to pray and not enter into temptation, what happens? He goes off by himself to pray, and when he comes back, they are asleep. Don't be asleep. Get up and pray that you don't enter into temptation. He'd warned him about this earlier in the evening. He says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. But yet in the hour of testing... They're asleep, 
And the result is, because they're asleep and they're not praying, the door is open to temptation, and when the temptation hits in the form of threats to their lives, what do they do? They all run for it. It's not just Peter. See, they all run for it. The test has become the devil's temptation, and he wins that part of the game. And he wins because they didn't pray. They did not pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. I, th- I, think, I think COVID and the cultural climate of the last year is trying to teach me something. Maybe many things, but don't you think that one thing it's trying to teach us is that we need to pray for ourselves and for one another that God would protect us. Who would have thought two years ago that our world could be hit by a virus that may be unconquerable, that it would have the power, I mean, I could understand the power to shut down a third world economy, but to shut down a first world economy And then, how about the power to get so wrapped up in politics that people would be at each other's throats over this whole thing? And not just people in general, but people in the church. Can we say kingdom people? And then I asked myself, how, how did this happen? And then we're looking at this prayer, and I'm thinking, wow. Pray, God, do not lead us into temptation. Do not lead us into a place where we will stumble and fail you and your kingdom and fail one another. Who would have thought? But of course, again, Paul understood what Jesus was talking about so well, didn't he? He said, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. But I feel like I've been unaware. And now looking back, I think, my goodness, Lord, Spare us, save us, deliver us, and help me to be more of a man of prayer who resists the enemy and all his schemes. All right, so, two questions to leave you with. Are you, are we learning how to pray?
the way Jesus teaches us. And with that then, how many of these five petitions are reflected in your prayers, and and how are they reflected? And you think about the way you've prayed over the last week, the last month, and say, what have I prayed about? Are my concerns the concerns that Jesus lays out in this model prayer? Well, perhaps you uh, want to join us in the sermon follow-up class in the next hour. Be glad to have you with us. <clears throat> we'll ask our musicians to come up and lead us. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the glory, the goodness, the wonder of your kingdom and And even more, Lord, we thank you for the wonder that you have invited us in, that you have a place for us there, and you have a purpose for us there. We'd like to be more useful, increasingly useful in your kingdom program. We'd like to learn to pray under your teaching. Will you guide us in these reflections and guide us in our practice? May prayer become the avenue for transforming friendship and for our partnership in the work of your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.